In a moment, I'm going to read Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. So you can start turning there in your own copies of God's Word, if you brought one with you, or you can find the reading available for you in the digital version of the bulletin. But before we read it, I want to express gratitude, even though he's not here, to Pastor Josue, who's let me kind of sub in for him in the series that he's been leading us through, through the letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. I'm grateful Pastor Josue, Pastor Luke, and some of our elders are at a conference in Birmingham this weekend, so we can even be praying that they would come back refreshed and encouraged and ready to return their hand to the plow in ministering to us so faithfully. The passage that I'm about to read is a passage about running the race of the Christian life. And here's what we're going to see together. We're going to see that if, if we as Christians, if you identify as a Christian, if you, if you don't, we're very glad that you're here visiting with us this morning. But, but for a moment, if we as Christians are going to finish the race that we've begun, we need three things. We need to be secure, we need to be steadfast, and we need to be self-aware. But we can't figure out how to do that on our own. So it is very good news that God has spoken to us in his word. So let's turn now and consider what he has to say to us as we consider the race of the Christian life. How we can have strength for the journey from Philippians 3 verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. In a moment, I'm going to pray and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. But first, I'm going to invite you in a moment of silence to pray for me, uh, to pray that God would bless the preaching of his word and also sustain my voice, which is struggling a little bit this morning. So please pray for me. Lord God, you have brought each and every one of us here this morning. We come from all sorts of different places, with all sorts of different struggles and all sorts of different questions. We ask that you would have your way with us this morning, that you would accomplish your purpose among us through your word, by your spirit, for the glory of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I am not a marathon runner. Some of you are, I know. But if I were ever to run 26.2 miles, 
there's only one race for me, and it's the Disney Marathon that happens every year in January in Orlando, Florida. Some of you, I know, are planning to participate in the race that's happening here in Champaign-Urbana in April, but with all due respect, please do not try to convince me to join you in that race. Because if I'm going to run any race, it's going to be Disney. It's not because I'm the world's biggest Disney fan. And it's also not because a race in Florida in January is still going to be warmer than a race in Illinois in April. <laughs> it's because the Disney Marathon is designed from beginning to end to lift up the hearts of the runners, to strengthen them as they are on their race. The race starts at the early hour of 4.30 a.m. with fireworks and fanfare. But then there's a period when the runners are kind of drudging along on an open highway. But right when they're about to hit the, the first wall, so to speak, the first major mile marker, the sun begins to rise and they enter Main Street in Magic Kingdom where there are more fireworks and more fanfare and they, they likely have friends and family waiting for them there to cheer them along on the way. And the whole race is designed this way. There's, there's little celebrations every couple of miles, but at the big mile markers, the times when you'll be most tempted to give up, you enter Magic Kingdom. You run under Cinderella's castle. You arrive at Animal Kingdom. And then at the end, the race ends at Epcot with more fireworks, more fanfare, a medal that goes around your neck. And if you're of legal age and so inclined, you can purchase a cold beer. Kids, by the way, if, if you want to get a trip to Disney in the near future, it could be worth trying to convince your parents to run the Disney Marathon. It might work for you. The Imagineers behind Disney Marathon understand something. They understand that running a marathon is hard. So with wisdom and care, they've provided for encouragement along the way. And in the passage we just read, the Apostle Paul is depicting the Christian life like a long, hard race. It's a marathon. But the good news for you this morning is our God and King Jesus Christ is so much more wise and so much more caring than the best of the Disney Imagineers, and they are pretty great. He has provided for us to have strength for the race. So let's look at how Jesus provides those things for us, even at the very outset of our race, as he provides a way for us to be secure. Would you look at verse 12 again with me? It says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul is starting in this passage with a recognition of something that he has not yet attained. What that is is actually pretty clear from the context. It's something that Pastor Josue taught us about last week. It's the resurrection. Paul has not yet attained 
glory. He has not arrived at his final destination. And part of what that means is he's still struggling with his sinfulness. It's like a heavy weight that is slowing him down on his race. It means he's not yet perfect like Jesus, and he's struggling on the race day after day. But Paul doesn't just start out with this recognition of something he has not yet attained. He also starts with a recognition of something he has attained. What is that? He says, Christ Jesus has already made me his own. He's already made me his own. That Greek verb that is translated that way is emphatic. It could also be translated something like this idea that he's been fully received by Christ. We live in a world that teaches us in so many different ways that for us to be loved, we need to be lovely. But the good news about Jesus that we see at the very beginning of this passage is that God loved you before you were lovely. And it's because he loves you that he is committing himself to make you lovely. Paul already belongs to Jesus, although he's not yet become everything he's destined to be. So whether this is your first time in this building, your first time visiting a church, your first time doing anything connected with the Christian faith, or you've been at this for years, we all need to hear that we cannot even begin the race of the Christian life if we're not clear on this point. If you don't know that you are loved before you are lovely, you're on a completely different path, not the path that Jesus has called you to follow. The only hope you can have for a relationship with God is that by his grace, we can come to belong to Jesus like Paul did. And because we belong to him, we can receive from him what he has deserved despite all of our undeserving. Now, Paul is clearly active in this passage in his pursuit of the Christian life. He uses language like pressing on, straining. It's a difficult race. There's all sorts of activity, but we need to be clear that all of the activity of the Christian life flows out of receptivity. All of the effort of the Christian life only counts for anything if we start by receiving the rest that Jesus has provided. So how do we respond to this message? I think the old hymn, Nothing either great or small puts it well. Maybe you've heard these words before. It says, lay your deadly doing down. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. The only way to be secure in Jesus is to know that we belong to him before we become like him. So what does that security look like in our lives? It looks like a lot of things, but what we're going to see for the remainder of this morning is it actually produces the next two points in our sermon. If we are secure, then we can be steadfast on the race and we can be self-aware along the way. But the order is so important. In verse 12, Paul uses that word because. It is because Christ Jesus has made him his own that he presses on on the race. So we can't become steadfast or self-aware in following Jesus 
if we don't first know that we are secure and belonging to him. So I want to ask you, do you know that you belong to Jesus? Do you experience that reality? Let's turn now and think about what it means to be steadfast on the Christian race. Look again at verse 13 with me. It says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, the resurrection, the final glory that he's yearning for. I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul says he's forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He's not ultimately concerned with his past performance on the race. And to be clear, part of what that means for you is that you shouldn't be either. The truth is, being overly concerned with the past leads us into all sorts of different shackles in our Christian life. We experience bitterness because of past hurt, a lack of forgiveness because of past harm, a a sense of shame because of our own past failures, and it, it trips us up on the race. We can meditate on these past failures in a way that actually does not lead to the freedom and life that God offers us in Jesus. Instead, you're being invited, like Paul, to be concerned with the glorious destination that is ahead of you. It's common wisdom among runners that Where you put your eyes, your body tends to follow. So if you're looking behind you, it's going to slow you up on the race. Paul's focus is on what is ahead, and that's what leads him to be able to strain to use that verb from this passage. Distracted eyes lead to shackles on the race. Eyes that are fixed in the right place lead to freedom. But Paul's looking ahead. What exactly is he looking at? What ought we look at in the Christian life? Well, verse 14 gives us the answer. We must set our eyes on the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul's talking about arriving in God's presence where he'll be perfectly like Jesus and share with him in his glory. There's a chance if you've been around the church for some time, that this message has started to become humdrum for you. It started to become maybe overly familiar, but it should be astounding to us. Listen to these words that Brian read earlier for us again from Revelation 3.21. Jesus says to the one who conquers, that is to the one who finishes the race of the Christian life, to the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Can you believe that the king of heaven and earth wants to share his throne with you? Wants to share his glory with you? Is that something that is actually at the center of your life vision? Or is it maybe on the periphery? something that's not actually affecting your day-to-day. Now, Paul is focused in verse 13 on the importance of forgetting what is behind so that he can strain for what is ahead, and we, we need that reminder. But I think we also, if you're anything like me, really struggle not just by having distracted eyes focused on the past, but distracted eyes that are focused on the things of the present. 
For me, this often looks like the ways that I make an idol out of my own comfort, out of my own schedule, out of the things that I want to do with my time. This idol of comfort, it keeps your eyes focused on the present world where you think that your comfort can be found. But the the great irony of making comfort into your idol is that you're making too big a thing out of comfort actually leads you to make too small a thing out of your life. Because when comfort is your idol, you begin to live for the kingdom of your own comfort rather than for the kingdom of God and of his Christ. So our dreams, they become pedestrian. We dream of comfortable homes, secure incomes, polite children, the next delicious meal, the next fun night at the bar. These things aren't necessarily bad in themselves. They're not bad dreams, but I would argue that they're small. When we make too big a thing out of our comfort, we end up making too small a thing out of our lives. One man who did not expect too little out of his life was a Scottish missionary in the 19th century named John Patton. He was a missionary who went to the New Hebrides, which is modern-day Vanuatu, to preach the gospel among tribes of violent cannibals. And he had a very faithful and fruitful ministry there for years. But before he actually went on the mission field, he was gathering support in Glasgow in Scotland, and he got into this conversation with an elderly gentleman, a faithful Christian, a man who was a member of the church there, a man named Mr. Dixon. And Mr. Dixon was expressing concern about John Patton's plan to go and preach the gospel to these cannibals. What did he say? He basically said, don't go, because if you go, they will kill you and you will be eaten by them, which was not actually that crazy of an opinion to hold because previous Scottish missionaries had gone and been killed and been eaten by these cannibals. But listen to how John Patton responded to Mr. Dixon. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. A number of years ago, my dad, who who recently passed away, called me into the kitchen when I was visiting my family in South Carolina. And he had a solemn face on when he looked at me and he said, Ethan, if God calls you to the mission field and you die there, I will be sad, but I'll be okay. (laughs) He, He really said that. He wasn't joking. Now, I kind of take it for granted that Most, if not all of us, are not called to preach the gospel to cannibals. As far as I know, I haven't been called to die on the mission field, but God might have different plans for me. But John Patton and my dad, they were onto something. 
We are a people who are called to strain after what is to come, which means both forgetting what lies behind past failures, past hurts for the sake of what Jesus is preparing for us ahead, but it also means refusing to be distracted by the present comforts that this world offers us. Good gifts in themselves, but not the ultimate thing that God desires for our lives. What would it look like if our dreams began to revolve less and less around our own comforts or reputation and more and more around Jesus's call for the church to be an embassy of the kingdom of God on earth? What if our dreams started to sound more like Jesus's opening words in the Sermon on the Mount, where he describes the blessed life as being poor in spirit, as being meek in character, as being people who are patient under persecution? If our glorious destination is really ahead of us, then we can be freed from these distractions. We can begin to strain for the prize. We can have these kinds of dreams that actually lead us out of our castles of comfort that we're all trying to build in one way or another and into the world with hope for our neighbors and hope for the nations. Well, this brings us to our our last point. What does the Christian need to finish the race? So far, we've seen that to finish the race, we need to be secure We need to know that we belong to Jesus even before we become who Jesus wants us to be. But that belonging, it produces becoming. If we're secure, that leads to steadfastness. And now we're going to see that along with a new steadfastness, we can have a new self-awareness. John Calvin famously, in his opening words to his Institutes of the Christian Religion, He defined wisdom in this way. He said, wisdom, true wisdom, has two parts. It's knowledge of God, and it's knowledge of ourselves. But when John Calvin said that, he was not thinking about the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs or whatever your favorite personality test is. He's talking about knowing yourself in relation to God. Knowing yourself first as a creature who's in need of God's loving condescension to us, to reveal himself to us, to come to us, to initiate relationship with us, but also as a sinner who's in need of the merciful rescue that only he can provide. If you do not know yourself first and foremost as God's creature and as a sinner in need of his rescue, then it doesn't matter how well you are able to articulate different facets of your personality. You don't really have the self-awareness that counts. You don't have this biblical self-awareness that you're being invited into. In verse 12, Paul has already modeled for us this self-awareness. He has a self-awareness about where he's at in the journey. He's been obtained by Christ but he's not yet arrived at the destination, and that leads him to press on, to strain, to know that he's he's not there yet. But in verse 15, Paul also invites you, maybe a little bit more directly, to consider yourself when he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Pause for a moment and think about what those words imply. They imply an uncomfortable truth that not everyone in Paul's audience was mature. So 
Are you? Are you mature? Let's think about what that means from the Bible's perspective. Mature people on the Christian race are not perfect people. The broader context of this passage makes that clear. Paul himself says he has not yet arrived. But mature people are people who know themselves. They know their shortcomings and their weaknesses. It's immature people, on the other hand, who are more likely to think they are farther along on the journey than they really are. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The irony of Christian maturity is that the wiser you think you are, the more likely it is that you are trapped in foolishness and immaturity. But the more aware you are of your foolishness and of your immaturity, the more likely you are to be on the path toward wisdom. So how do we grow in this self-aware maturity that we need to finish the race of the Christian life? Well, ultimately, a growing self-awareness can only come in relation to Jesus. It only comes from belonging to him. It only comes from knowing ourselves as his creature and as people in need of his merciful rescue. True self-awareness begins with this recognition of our deep dependence on God, our creator, and our redeemer. But it's also true that we desperately need one another if we are going to be growing in this self-aware maturity. And Paul assumes this much, that this race is a communal project in verse 15. It might not be obvious to you, but in that verse, all of the yous are plural. The right thinking that he's talking about, the right self-reflection is much more like something that happens with a group of friends around a table rather than you sitting alone in your room. Earlier this month, I, I spent a week with some of my closest friends. We're all pastors serving in different contexts across the nation, and we gather once a year to encourage one another, to be refreshed by Jesus' grace, to hold one another accountable. And it, it, was, it was a real privilege. I grant that, that this kind of annual gathering is, is something of a luxury. It's not something that every Christian can maybe manage. But what is more important and more essential is a privilege that every Christian does have, and that is mutual belonging in the church. So I want to ask you, do, do you have people in your life who really have passport, not just to comfort you, but to challenge you? Do you have people in your life that actually know the particular ways that your heart reflects not only the dignity of the ways that you are made in God's image, but also the depravity of your sin? If you don't, I encourage you to find someone, to invite someone into that kind of relationship with you, even in the week ahead. It could be a pastor. It could be a counselor. It could be a more mature Christian. It could be a friend. But we all need help if we're going to be growing in this godly self-awareness. We need people to help us to understand where we are at in our journey. So maybe even take a moment now to reflect and maybe write down the name of someone that you'd like to invite into this kind of relationship with you 
so that we can really sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. Philippians 3, verses 12 to 16 is a passage about pressing on so we can finish the race. And as we've seen already, Paul points us at the very beginning to what the believer has already attained. But as we prepare to close, I want to point out to you that in verse 16, he does it again. He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Why does Paul begin and end the passage in this way? It's because he's cueing the fireworks. He's cueing the the fanfare of the gospel. He recognizes that the Christian race is a marathon and it is hard. So we need to be reminded again and again that looking to Jesus is not just the beginning of the Christian life. It's the end of the Christian life, and it's actually every step in between. Matthew chapter 26 tells us about a man who was on a race, who was hitting a sort of wall. It tells us about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, in the hour of his great temptation. And in that garden, Jesus said to his disciples, My soul is sorrowful, even unto death. We also read that there he prayed to his father, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, talking about the cross, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What do we see? We see that in the garden, when he was hitting a wall, in the hour of his temptation to give up on the race, what did Jesus do? He was able to go to that cross because he was secure in belonging to his father. Hebrews 12, chapter 3, tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. He was looking ahead, past the cross, to his resurrection, and even the beautiful reality that he would be able to share that resurrection with you. And that joy motivated him to endure the cross and to despise the shame. And even in his dying moments on that cross, Jesus prayed to his father in dependence and trust. He said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So what do we see? We see in Jesus, a man who is perfectly secure in his belonging to God, who is perfectly steadfast on his race and who is perfectly self-aware of his deep dependence on his father the whole way. And the good news of the gospel is that he did all of these things in your place. He was secure and steadfast and self-aware for you so that right now you can have an unshakable standing with God and that over time through his spirit, he can produce these qualities in you more and more. What do we see? The only hope for the Christian race is that we depend on the strength that Jesus provides from beginning to end. So how can we know that the secure, steadfast, and self-aware Christian can actually make it across the finish line with all the walls, with all the temptations, with all the discouragements along the way? Well, I want us to close by considering Paul's very own life. 
Because at the end of his life, he wrote a letter to his friend, Timothy. And we read these words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Friends, the the Christian race is a long one, and it's a hard one. But Jesus has run ahead of you. And that meant Paul could say at the end of his life, I have finished the race. The same can be true for you. That if you look to Jesus, he'll give you a new security, a new steadfastness, a new self-awareness so that we can keep running. And one day we will receive from him the crown of life. Would you please pray with me? Jesus, we desperately need you. We need the strength that only you can offer. Even as we go out from here, we might be going out anticipating hardship, anticipating struggle, anticipating discouragement. Would you meet us in all your needs, even as you've done that in speaking to us in your word this morning? Would you help us, like the Apostle Paul, to look not to our own performance, but to yours, to press on and to strain because we know we belong to you, and even to be growing together in a self-aware maturity, a self-aware wisdom, so that we can honor you on our race and invite others to do the same. We ask that you would get all the glory, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.